Ed Trusted Season 1, The Critical Race Theory Craze That Is Sweeping the Nation. Episode 7, Not for the First Time Nor the Last. I mean, the notion that you can only develop patriotism by manufacturing a history or manufacturing a truth is a very, very false notion. People are more patriotic when they understand the society in which they live and are committed to making it a better society. That is the source of patriotism. Um, this fear that somehow if people know about slavery, about Jim Crow, about the ways in which race has shaped our dominant social institutions, that somehow they'd be less patriotic. That is simply a false narrative, a false notion. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're wrapping up season one of Ed Trust's new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we have tackled the accusation that the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children. We're talking, of course, about critical race theory. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to in some way move to restrict the instruction schools provide students, according to an analysis by Education Week. Over the last six episodes, we have heard from attorneys, educators, students, writers, psychologists, historians, and a leading critical race theorist, Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings. They have all provided us with insight as to what is going on and why. But today in our final conversation, we're turning to two historians in hopes that they can help us see some of the broader patterns that are at work. Adam Latz is professor of history at Binghamton University, where he studies the history of American education. His research centers on the history of cultural battles over schooling and school reform. Of his books, perhaps the one most on point for this conversation is The Other School Reformers, Conservative Activism in American Education, published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Before he earned his Ph.D. in history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he taught middle and high school history for 10 years in Milwaukee. Welcome, Dr. Latz. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Latz is joined by one of the most eminent education historians in the country, Dr. James Anderson. Dr. Anderson is professor of history and dean of the School of Education at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. His pioneering work, the Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935, is key to understanding the educational experience of African Americans in the crucial years around the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the anti-democratic counter-revolution that followed Reconstruction. The American Education Research Association recognized it as 1990's outstanding book and last year recognized Dr. Anderson with its presidential award. I can't possibly list all the honors he has garnered. I will link to some of them in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Anderson. Tanji and I have been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. Thank you. I'm honored by the invitation. It seems we have two kinds of history to talk about today. The first is the history students learn in school, and the second is the history of political fights over what students learn in school. Let's tackle the first one first. 
I recently read something Thomas Paine wrote about the founding of the United States. It seems to have set the tone for American education ever since. Rome, Thomas Paine said, was originally a band of ruffians. Plunder and rapine made her rich and her oppression of millions made her great. But America needs never be ashamed to tell her birth. Dr. Anderson, can you talk about how Thomas Paine's desire to think of the founding of the United States as purer and more noble than that of Rome is reflected in today's history education? I think that's what we always try to do. We always try to portray a history that makes us feel proud um, and innocent as well. And what we forget, uh, one of my most um, precious quotes came from the late Maya Angelou, in which she said that history, despite its wrenching pain, can never be unlived, but its face with courage shall never be lived again. And that's the situation we've always been in, but it's been difficult to get people uh, to understand that we can't unlive slavery. We can't unlive Jim Crow. We can't unlive the inequalities and lack of freedom that have characterized the nation in so many ways. But if we face the past with courage, we don't have to live it again. And if we don't, as we were saying before us, uh, we may very well live it again. We are now struggling again for the uh, free and fair right to vote, which I never thought. I mean, when I was a student in, in, in college, I was in part of demonstrations. We got the Golden Right Act passed in 1965, and I actually thought that was behind us. I saw, I'm from Greene County, Alabama. It was 80% black in 1860s, 80% black today. But when I grew up and my grandparents grew up, there was not a single black elected official. I never knew of anyone in my family that actually voted until 1965. And when we got the Voting Rights Act, I thought, wow, what's a major, major achievement? We put this behind us. We were right back on the front line, people marching for the free and fair right to vote. And I think that's the essence of Biangelo's quote. If you don't face your past squarely and realize the ways in which you have marginalized people and created injustice, then you can pretend that it never happened. And we're seeing that today with this pretense that we have a very different kind of history. Um, Lord knows the people who suffered through this wish we had a very different kind of history. Because it simply would mean that you wouldn't have 200 and virtually 250 years of slavery at Jim Crow. And the pain and suffering and death as well that occurred somehow could be wiped clean. But that's not the history that we have to face. We have to face the history that we live, not the history that we want to pretend to have. I feel like, you know, saying amen, but <laughs> we're not in church. But um, Dr. Latt, you've written extensively about this desire of those you call educational conservatives to preserve a patriotic education. Does what Dr. Anderson say resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Anderson mentioned, you know, this inability for certain groups of Americans to, to face the past squarely. Um, and I think for historically, for white conservatives uh, who have gone over the you know the past hundred years under different names, uh, but but you use the word patriotic, and that's in the 20th century, that's often what they called themselves, you know, the patriotic side. 
but over and over again, it was also the side who um, was unwilling to face the past squarely and instead wanted to do what Thomas Paine suggested, you know, um, celebrate the pure and noble history of the United States. And I think uh, part of the, the problem we can see as um, uh, a way of understanding the word hero, you know, and the heroes of the past. If we think of the word hero in the sense of um, a protagonist, certainly white conservatives have always wanted to have people like Thomas Jefferson be seen as traditional heroes, you know, good people. But in addition, and I think harder to talk about, they've also wanted to have people like Thomas Jefferson be the protagonist, uh, the main character. And so I think part of the problem is, is the compounding of this idea of being a good person, but also who are going to be the main characters of the story? Is it going to be the people who were fighting to uh, face the the uh, ugliness of America's past, or is it going to be the people who, um, uh, you know, pri were pri privileged in every state of American history? So is it going to be the Jeffersons or the Hemings? You know, is it going to be uh, everybody, or is it just going to be the 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 white English speaking, you know, uh, Americans? Well, this has really come to the fore with the 1619 Project, which almost seems to have kicked off this entire moral panic, although I'm not entirely sure. I think if the 1619 Project hadn't existed, something else would have kicked it off. Um, but as historians, did you see that as a worthy project? Um, did you... Um, find it a helpful corrective to what exists in history curricula? Um, I, I, I mean, ever since the late 1960s, particularly early 1970s, been a major shift in the Academy of Historians in the United States. There's so many brilliant works around these issues. I mean, for a long time, the Academy could be accused of overlooking these issues, uh, omitting things, and whether it was women in history or African-American history. But when you think about the 1970s, books by Herbert Gutman on Black family and slavery and freedom, or Lawrence Levine on Black consciousness and Black culture, uh, John Blassingame, there was so much scholarship that came out that most of these things have been discussed already. So much of what comes out now is a synthesis of the original history, of the original interpretations that are in place. And so the consensus in historical scholarship uh, is in this direction. I would say that for anything that's published and claims to be accurate and balanced, the way you deal with it in the classroom is simply ask that question. Is it accurate? Is it balanced? Are there other facts? Is there an alternative explanation? You don't seek to suppress it like you're living in Germany uh, in the 1940s. Uh, this is an open society, it's a democratic society, uh, freedom of speech is protected, including the right to ask all kinds of questions. So even the, the writers of the 1619 Project have acknowledged some things that were not entirely accurate or balanced. They made an effort to be accurate and balanced, but we all do that as historians. We could go back to our own writing and say, you know what? 
I think I question that. I think it's okay, or you should question it. So I don't see how it falls outside of the kind of scholarship that we do in general. I think it came at a time when there was so much demonization of this kind of scholarship. Um, and it came at a time where you do have a segment that would want to wish race away as though it never happened. And, uh, and so it has run into that, that collision. Uh, but I don't see it as any, that it's a different kind of phenomenon, for example. Why not take it if you want to use it and then go through with a fine-tooth comb as we do any kind of historical scholarship and say, okay, here's the, here's, here's the premise. Are there facts to support it? Um, and I don't see why they would run away for it and say, don't read it, let's suppress it, rather than to say, if you can counter, in fact, that was the group that tried to counter with, uh, with its own evidence and interpretation. But I would say for American students in general, and we're not good in this area in terms of the understanding of American history. Uh, we're not good in terms of what we do uh, in secondary social studies. But I would say for American students, don't suppress it. Don't hide it. Have them to face it squarely, head on, and say, what do you think of this? Is this true? I mean, we're treating them as so though they have no ability to think for themselves, that they have no ability to question, uh, to reckon with evidence, that somehow we have to protect them as though they are different. And I think they can take this on and, 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 and read it and learn from it and also um, discover if there are areas of fact or balance in that. This is one of many times when materials have become very controversial. Dr. Latz, you've, you've written extensively about the Scopes trial and how that kind of... Uh, well, I won't characterize. You characterize. That's your field. That's that's what you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, as, uh, as you know, as Dr. Anderson mentioned, the the a lot of the ideas in that that were included in the '69 project, they were great scholarship and and terrific writing, but they weren't particularly controversial among academic historians. Um, and similarly, a hundred years ago, the the science of evolution had already, it wasn't as settled as it became in the 1950s, but the science was not controversial. Uh, and I think the, uh, the lesson for the current round of critical race theory debates is that there's all different types of controversy. There are, you know, there's the, you know, controversy about what children should hear in school. Uh, and it often gets pasted on top of you know, controversies about science or history. So a hundred years ago at the Scopes trial, uh, the conservative faction tried hard. William Jennings Bryan was, you know, the, the most famous um, conservative uh, at the Scopes trial. And he tried hard. He was, he was very connected. He tried hard to get a scientist to come um, to Dayton and uh, Tennessee and argue against evolutionary science. And he couldn't get anyone to come. You couldn't get anyone to come. There was not a controversy among scientists. And I think as Dr. Anderson suggests, if you were to ask a hundred scientists, I'm sorry, a hundred historians today, um, you know, is race a central theme of 
history in the United States, there would be no controversy. You know, their their historians uh, will do anything to argue, but they wouldn't argue about that because it's no controversy. The controversy in the 20s was um, a a ginned up controversy about what uh, an imagined imaginary version of what evolution would do to children's religion. Um, And I think the controversy today is not about history. It's a ginned up controversy about what children should um, have as their history education. And I would add one thing here. Uh, We do have some experience as to what happens when you hide or suppress knowledge among the youth. And we saw that in the 60s, for instance. Um, Much of American history had not been shared and not been told. They finished high school, they got into college, or they got into young adulthood, and all of a sudden, they saw this loss of innocence, and a lot of young people dropped out. A lot of young people felt betrayed uh, in the songs, in the music. You can, you know, you, you could hear this um, sense of, well, why was I told the wrong story? Why was I told, um, and why was I misguided? And I think what we, you know, we have to remember that this does not go without a cost. If you repress the truth, if you hide things and shield things, eventually people will find out at that point they lose trust in society. We call it the generational gap in the 60s, but they lost trust in an adult generation that they thought had lied to them and had misguided them and had hidden uh, facts and truths from them. We could go through that again. If we think we can head off the truth or, uh, and, 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 or the examination of issues. I would say the exploration of issues, that somehow we can keep youth from exploring things that some people do not want them to hear. Uh, we'll pay a price again for that. Uh, and if, I'm, if I may jump in on that point, Dr. Anderson, um, it, it wasn't just a, a generic or vague sense. There was a set of very popular history textbooks um, in the 1930s and 40s that were actively suppressed. Uh, the rug textbooks tried to teach young Americans um, that uh, the United States was not a perfect society with a perfect history. And um, conservatives uh, in the 40s um, protested. And even when they didn't get rid of all the um, progressive ideas of textbooks, they did scare school principals and school teachers away from aggressively uh, teaching children the real history. And, and as Dr. Anderson says, the nation paid a price. And so today's controversies, if they scare teachers away from teaching about race, teaching about history, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, well-established history that you, it's, uh, it's a low bar. Um, at conservatives only have to make an idea seem controversial for schools to avoid it. Uh, and it, it's, they don't have to prove that they are correct. They don't have to prove that they have a better history. They just have to make a, an idea, science, uh, sex ed, uh, US history. They have to make it seem controversial and public school teachers and administrators want to fit in with their community, they'll avoid it. And there's a, as Dr. Anderson said, there is a steep price to be paid for generations. That's so powerful, the, the idea that they don't have to prove it 
true. They don't have to offer an alternative. They just have to tap into that narrow space that they know their constituents are so easily manipulated into and blow it up. And here we are. Um, And as you're writing, I'm just thinking about, you know, the chilling effect that's already happening. We've already seen teachers fired. We've already seen a principal fired. So the um, need to control student thought and young people's thought, you know, as we think about what school does, like one of the primary functions of schooling in America or any society is to create the citizenry for the community it's going to go into. So this sort of like reproductive nature that school has in terms of um, reproducing citizens for itself, basically. And we are deciding what kind of citizens we want. We don't want deeply educated, critical thinking citizens. We want those who are um, easily swayed and easily manipulated and corralled into simplistic thinking, which is troubling. And it really kind of situates our students to not necessarily be able to compete on the global stage. It's really sad. So I do want to, I don't want to provide anybody an out, but what I want to do is just um, segment a little bit, because I think there are some people right now saying, we want a patriotic education, you know, what you would call a patriotic education. We want, we don't want children to learn all the ugly stuff. That's not all that important. It's not the main point. There are other people who say, teach the controversy. And I think that sounds so um, benign in a way. You know, so, okay, well, if you, you know, you can teach, you can assign a, 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 you can assign 1619, but then you have to assign the other side. Or other views. And then you kind of, you go, okay, well, I guess that's good if it's what Dr. Anderson was saying, which is examine every uh, every statement for its factual nature and what's the evidence and how do you, how do you evaluate that evidence. But if it's just a panegyric against the 1619 Project without actual evidence and without actual um, uh, uh, um facts to back it up, then you're just in this morass of, I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion, we've all got opinions, they're all correct. Um, and, and I worry about that. Am I right to worry about that? Actually, I, I think what I would want everyone to understand is that it's not one or the other. Um, in fact, I think there's a lot more patriotism connected the truth about a society and to the pretension. And we have, we have countless noble examples. For example, the African-American soldiers that went off to fight in World War II, you think they were unaware of slavery? They were unaware of racism? They came from many places in the South where they couldn't vote, couldn't eat at lunch counters, went to segregated schools, inferior schools. You think they fought less harder than the other soldiers? You think they were less committed? because they knew a different truth. I mean, the notion that you can only develop patriotism by manufacturing a history or manufacturing a truth is a very, very false notion. People are more patriotic when they understand the society in which they live and are committed to making it a better society. 
that is the source of patriotism. Um, this fear that somehow if people know about slavery, about Jim Crow, about the ways in which race has shaped our dominant social institutions, that uh, somehow they'd be less patriotic. That is simply a false narrative, it's a false notion. I remember thinking with, with it, 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 it was awesome to me. I think when maybe under Jimmy Carter, when they tried to rescue the hostage from Iran, that one of the person as part of the rescue, I believe, was Geronimo's daughter or granddaughter uh, that went in to help with it. <clears throat> I mean, you think they're unaware of how Native Americans have been treated in this society? And you think they used that language in World War II as code talk uh, so that the enemy couldn't break the code? And they helped with that, even lost their lives rather than reveal that. Well, we have so much history about Americans who understood, who suffered, who lived Jim Crow, who was moved on the reservations, and yet they come back generation after generation to fight in the wars, uh, to help make this a better society. That should destroy the notion that you only get patriotism and commitment by lying to people. I think that's the pull quote from for this. <laughs> now, my my biggest question is why do we continue to frame the truth as controversial? I think just on that level alone, why is that the way in which we present the teaching of history? Why is the notion that women were not allowed to vote? And then in 1920, you know, 1913, um, Susan B. Anthony decided that women could vote, but she voted and worked really hard for white women and not black women. Like that's that's not controversial, right? So why do we continue to situate this idea that teaching history, teaching the truths about history, is a controversial thing to talk about? I think those are one of my questions I always have. Um, Dr. Lash has written extensively about this, so I'm going to let him lead on this one. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I, 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 um, the, the word that works for me in this case, you know, the question, uh, uh, you know, how, how, how is it possible to assume that you'll, you'll squench children's patriotism by revealing the truth to them, uh, as Dr. Anderson has? It doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, but to me, it makes sense um, if we think of history, not just history, but history class, instead of being a presentation of the academic discipline of history to young people, a lot of conservatives for 100 years, and I think still now, instead envision the role of history class as a eulogy. Mm. It's a eulogy. And if we think about it that way, all of a sudden, it's very clear why people get so mad. Right. So, because they get so mad because it's as if you're standing up at their grandfather's funeral and saying things that are insulting to that person's memory. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I think of history class. I was a history teacher. That's, that's not how historians tend to think about the goal of history. But for 100 years now, that is how a lot of Americans, some of whom call themselves conservatives, some of whom don't, they've thought of that as the main goal of history class. Uh, so, and, and that's what makes sense to me anyway. Like, why mm -hmm. do people get so mad when I'm telling their children 
what happened in the Vietnam War. I'm telling their children what happened uh, with voting rights in the 1950s. I'm telling their children what happened uh, with school segregation. They're just facts and they're not controversial. But if it's a eulogy, it makes sense to me. Yeah, it's like speaking ill of the dead. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Right. It's impolite, right, to well, speak ill and, of the dead, I, sort and of. And I think, mm-hmm. I, if I could, I think impolite is even not strong enough. Mm-hmm. It, the, the, the word, you know, the, the term I think of is, you know, that it's fighting words. Mm-hmm. If you go it's impolite. to a eulogy, it's not just impolite. That is uh, an outrage. Right. And th- the fervor that I see in these uh, school board meetings these days and the fervor at school board meetings in the 1970s and the 1950s and the 1920s, that's not just people who think the other side is being impolite. That's people who think that the other side is desecrating the memory of their mm-hmm. relatives. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I think that that definitely opens up a way of understanding. Um, but I still think it's important that we stop saying things are controversial, mm, right? Absolutely. Because they're actually not controversial. It's just teaching the truth. And I think how then would either of you, because a lot of this is taking place in the K-12 space, and then Dr. Latch, you've been in the K-12 space yourself, um, how do you help educators navigate all of this crazy, this crazy town we find ourselves in? What is your best advice for them? Uh, I think I would remind them, uh, and in this case, um, sort of Jeffersonian notion, and it's not changed by Jefferson's life or but the very conception, at least of American democracy, is that it's based on informed citizens. And without that, it becomes very fragile. And so most of the people that they're teaching in high schools, uh, they are not going to college. Many of them are not going to college. and even when they go to college, often they don't get a very different kind of education. But these people will be soldiers, workers, voters. And you have to, at that point, get them accustomed to uh, the science, the facts, the reckon with facts, that old notion from uh, Monihan, we all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. To get them to see that. Because if you don't see that, then you get people not just unable to sustain democratic institutions, uh, as we saw on January 6th, but we also get people who are, able, uh, who are unable to just sustain the basic tenets of society. We're seeing this in COVID-19. But, um, you get people say, well, what, you know, as if they know more than the scientists about this. Uh, and they question this, and they don't trust the science. Uh, do we really want to, I mean, it's one thing to question, and that's what you're supposed to do in science. You're supposed to question, always question, uh, replicate, look at data, question data. But to suggest that somehow science itself should be questioned, uh, and that we, we, we don't have any trust in it. Well, what's the consequence? People are dying now. And, 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 and they uh, being injured and seriously sick. There are people out there who simply have not learned through their education how to question, what to accept, how to reckon with facts. And so when we look at our secondary schools with history and social studies, we have to see this as an opportunity to prepare citizens 
to sustain democracy. Because the most fragile thing about democracy is simply that uninformed citizen who is uh, given to demagogues uh, and cults and things like that. Uh, you have to know how to arrive at an understanding with an independent mind, how to question in an independent way. You're unable to do that. Um, and even the Federalist Papers, I mean, Federalist Paper Number 10, which a lot of the conservatives like to, to read uh, Federalist Papers, the number one concern they had was that demagogues and factions, and they decided that the, that, that the cure would, would be much in the disease. They thought, well, the way America was developing with this landscape, it would be virtually impossible for a faction to take over the whole nation. Well, we have to remember that our founding fathers could not have dreamed of the internet or social media. Uh, I remember when they put on social media that Obama was a Muslim, and in less than a week, a third of the American population thought that he was, in fact, Muslim. So we are living in an age now where um, how we educate our citizens and, and our young people to be informed citizens is even more critical than it was in the days of the founders. Uh, but they understood one thing, that the big danger to democracy was demagogic factions. And that is still the big danger to democracy. And we're living that out right now um, in our classrooms and in grocery stores and parking lots. And I read the other day, a parent sent their child to school in Tennessee with a mask on and the teacher removed it from the child. You know, so we are in dangerous waters for sure. Um, and I wonder, either one of you, Dr. Anderson, you talked about teachers developing students to become independent thinkers. How might the instruction of teachers or for pre-service teachers really begin to prepare um, classroom teachers to do that kind of work? Because I think we have current teachers who may not have been taught how to do that. And so they're going on the same kind of teaching they learned when they were in school. But then if this is opportunity, then opportunity exists on the pre-service teacher side as well. So how do we then work? How does the higher ed side sort of join in this fight to prepare teachers to go into classrooms to do this really important work? I'll just say a few words and then turn it back to Dr. Latt. I think he's much uh, outstanding work in this area. But um, I was part of a group with Gloria Latson Billis and others at the National Academy of Education to do this thing on, uh, on civic discourse and, uh, and civic reasoning. I think one of the things we came to understand is that when we do teach social studies or civics, uh, we have to have much more of a historical context. The paper that was done by um, Nancy Beattie and Zoe Burkholder was all about, you got to have a historical context. You just can't, the way we have been able to uh, whitewash it is that we have this thing like, oh, current events, and uh, it's almost like national brotherhood or uh, uh, ritual and group participation, and there's nothing to, um, to really be concerned about or nothing to question. Uh, and they're saying, how do you get through that without a historical context? And you can take all of that and have almost no understanding of the way in which your society has been shaped. 
And so I would say, to, and, and, and we've actually hired some people in social studies here in the pre-service area, you got to say, it's not whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever it is. It's taking these questions in a serious way, looking at the evidence, looking at interpretation, looking at balance, uh, and getting your students a sense of, I can question this. And, and for them to know that they don't have to rest on the written word. They don't have to rest on the teacher's uh, lecture or the, they can go to the primary sources themselves and they can find out for themselves if something is accurate or balanced. And the way we want to train American citizens, when something comes out, you know, you take um, voter fraud, like this, widespread voter fraud. There are people that study this 10 ways to Sunday, the, the Sunday, the Brennan Center, President of Chicago, who looked at a billion votes to see evidence of fraud. And I forget, it was something like 36 cases out of a billion over 10 years. We want our students to say, well, let's not run away from the question as to whether there's voter fraud. Let's look at the evidence. Let's say, well, let's see if there's voter fraud. Let's look at a billion votes. Um, and then let's look at the court cases that were brought up. Let's look at Fulton County. Let's look at Maricopa County. Did we find evidence? And you want them to be able to reckon with the evidence. That's all you want them to do. And you want them to realize this. So if you find evidence of voter fraud, then you should say that. If you find cheating, you should say that. But you shouldn't go in and find no evidence or virtually no evidence of voter fraud and then pass a law to say that if you stand in line for seven hours to vote, because you don't have access to voter machines and it's criminal to give you a drink of water. I mean, that is the kind of thinking you get. People are not trained independently to reckon with the fact. So on our pre-service teachers, let's not hop, skip through this. And let's not um, um, sort of pretend as though um, we can all get together, get along together. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to figure out what are the important questions, what are even the controversial questions, and how do you decide whether what is the truth, or as close as we approximate the truth, what is balance, what is the correct interpretation? That's what we want our students to do independently, no matter their political state. I'm sorry, Dr. Lass, I went on too long. If I could just add uh, 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 another additional layer to it for, for current and um, future teachers. Uh, there's, I think, a lot of good news, and there has been for a while in terms of how teachers are trained. I know uh, Dr. Ladson Billings at Wisconsin is very involved with teacher ed, and one of the things that she's been doing for um, decades now is emphasizing that you are not a teacher in a classroom hermetically sealed off. You are a member of the community. Uh, well, you should be, uh, and if you, if you aren't, you're not doing your job. And so I think something in addition uh, to uh, infusing social studies with good history, teachers, I think, want to keep doing what good teachers do, which is meeting their students' parents and their uncles and going to the football game and you go to church and you're part of the community. Um, and when parents read on Facebook or you know whatever, that teachers are doing X and Y to children, if they don't know you, they might believe that. But if they've met you at a conference 
if they've seen you at the grocery store, if you've uh, visited wherever, if you're connected to the community, then the parents uh, aren't going to be talking about a cartoon that they saw. They're going to be talking about, you know, Mr. Lotz or, you know, whoever. They're going to be talking about an actual human. And I get optimistic because Gallup polls have shown this for 20 years now, all through every presidential administration, including the previous one, when Gallup asks parents about schools, American schools, parents say they're terrible, they're doing this, they're doing that. But when Gallup asks parents about their children's schools, they love them. And I think that's the, the not just the ray of hope for the future, but already. Uh, cartoons can be really scary. Uh, memes can be really frightening, but relationships can puncture that stuff really fast and really quick, easily. One of my thoughts has been that this campaign has been directed exactly at that um, question, Dr. Latz, that parents have confidence more or less in their own kids' school, or at least they know what they are. African-American parents and Hispanic parents tend to have less confidence in their own children's schools, but still a, a pretty hefty amount. We now have COVID, so parents, sometimes they actually are more connected to school because they actually see the online stuff. Um, but but there's been a, a just a ripping apart, I think, and a less less ability to actually see people at the grocery store, physically see them at the grocery store. And I it's why I it's one of the reasons I think this is such a um powerful and destructive force at this moment. You, I assume you're talking about the uh the attacks on things like critical race theory and and um I I there's a part of me that's just just amazed. I mean all of a sudden you have Conservatives just talking demonize, demonizing woke. And I was like, when did this become a controversy? I mean, it's like, I understand what they're doing. It's like, can we not talk about policy? Can we not talk about promoting the general welfare from the Constitution? Missouri, for example, where the voters, conservative state, to expand Medicare. And then the governor tried to kill it. So let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about what is of the benefit of the American people. Let's play politics in terms of who we can demonize and get people to be afraid of and therefore to vote against this. And I do remember this about Hillary Clinton. I'll never forget. The year before she ran for the president, she had a 74% positive rating, which is almost unheard of. And Trey Gowdy and others created the Benghazi hearings and said up front, we're doing this not because we're concerned about Benghazi or something that happened there. We want to demonize Hillary Clinton. We want to bring her numbers down. And they did. All of a sudden, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton became uh, the devil in the blue dress you know, or blue pantsuit, uh, not the person with a 74% positive rating. Uh, and they were able to create this distrust and this fear around her. Uh, and we continue to play those politics. Let's demonize woke. Let's demonize critical race theory. Let's demonize this. 
So this whole notion of a kind of propaganda of demonization, uh, they don't seem to realize, the people who are proponents of this, that ultimately the chickens come home the roost. That can go the other way. We've seen cults in our society. We, we, we watched Jim, Jim Jones. Uh, we watched David Koresh. I mean, it, it, I'm still astonished at some of the people who were part of the Jones movement. Not all of these were, you know, people who were poor and dislocated uh, and depressed. Some of these people were doing well. Some of these people had good incomes. Uh, but somehow, in fact, one of the things that astonished me at the time was why would African-Americans even follow this person over there? And I never got, I mean, I never got that squared in my mind. But I did learn that with the right kind of propaganda and the demonization and creating distrust, and the amazing thing about that is that not do what I do, do what I say. And so if you watch what Jim Jones was doing, taking people's wives and taking their kids, under no other circumstance would people tolerate that. But once you get in that spin cycle where that person is your savior and that person is your salvation, you can do anything. And that's what I mean by chickens come home to roost. If you promote this kind of cult-like personality, um, democracy is in serious trouble to the extent that it expands. And so, uh, you know, I worry about it in that sense. Um, and how do we, how do we, how do we deal with this? This is a huge challenge. Let's, uh, let's, let's face it. Uh, one of the, we run cultural politics, demonization politics and propaganda politics. Uh, we're going to create the very kind of society that we hate. Because that's what happens in Russia, and that's what happens in many totalitarian societies. Uh, the opposition is no longer, and you know, I'm old enough to remember when in the Senate they would say my honorable opponent, but that's not the case anymore. It's my enemy. The opposition is the enemy, and the opposition is to be criminalized, criminalized when they vote. Criminalized when they're in office. I mean, think about it. They wanted Obama arrested, and they now think the Democrats are pedophiles and should be arrested. I mean, you get to that point, and that is the old saying, be careful uh, about your enemy. You may become like them. We're becoming like those totalitarian states in a very real sense. We're not there yet. I won't pretend we're there. If we keep going down this pathway, uh, we'll get there. Scary. Well... That is scary, and um, I think we're coming near our end. I just wonder if if there's any closing thoughts you have, or maybe that was your closing thought. But um, uh, actually, I think, and uh, Dr. Lawrence have the last word here. But I think um, you know one of the great things about our society. Um, I still think that we are the most democratic nation on the planet. Still, um, and I still like the ways in which it is structured um, that will enable us to sustain that if we can fight off some of the more totalitarian tendencies that are underway at the point. But we have a lot of people who think for themselves, and we have a lot of teachers who are sincerely concerned about what they do with their students and feel that they owe their students truth. They owe their students a chance to be independent-minded, to question. Um, 
don't feel that they have to walk into a classroom and indoctrinate. They have to walk into a classroom and hide the truth from their students. But we have a fighting chance, no doubt about it. We have we have a great fighting chance. But there are ebbs and flows in society. Uh, we were different in the 1960s than we are now. I mean, there was a lot of talk about race in the 1960s. Martin Luther King and the movements and John Lewis upfront about it. And the society reacted by saying, well, we should do something about it. Do something about the war on poverty. Do something about the Voting Rights Act. Pass a 1964 Civil Rights Act that bans discrimination against people because of gender and race. That was a response. That was the flow. We're in ebb now where we have significant segments of society saying, why don't we pretend that this never happened? Why don't we pretend that this is not important? Why don't we manufacture an alternative reality? Uh, and you actually had people uh, over the last four or five years using phrases like alternative facts. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you go, is that where we are? George Orwell would be, I mean, where are we now? So I think, um, uh, we have to recognize when we end an ebb like this and take it head on. It's something that if we think this democratic nation is worth saving, we're going to have to fight back against this tendency. Uh, like you said, amen. <laughs> uh, I, um, if I could add just a, an element, um, I think a lot of people, myself included, are surprised when, uh, what Dr. Anderson talked about is, you know, this attempt to manufacture an alternative reality. Why, over and over again, does that come down to school board politics? Why does that come down to textbooks and teachers over and over and over again? And um, my hunch is that um, schools are the visible and also locally controlled manifestation of these trends that are too hard to put your finger on otherwise. I do think, uh, like Dr. Anderson said, things have changed since the 1960s, since the 1920s, since the 1860s. Things have changed in big ways. And it's hard, I think, for someone to stand up um, and get followers and likes or votes or whatever it takes. It's hard for them to stand up and say, things in general are changing. You know, but it's easy to get followers and likes if you say things are changing because those teachers must be bullying our white children. Things are changing because our the, the teachers must have a scheme to make our children different. So when in if someone were to look around and say, gosh, in 2020, more young people are open to LGBTQ rights. Oh, gosh, in 2020, more young people, white young people are out marching in favor of Black Lives Matter. Gosh, in 2020, things are, children are different. White children are different than we thought they'd be. And it's hard to blame, you know, general demographic changes. But it's really easy to point a finger at the school and say, the school must have taught my child X, Y, or Z. And so that's what we're going to fight about. As you were talking, I was thinking about the stories I've read where people say, oh, well, my child came home and said what you said was racist. Yep. And, and how dare, you know, I be confronted with that. Um, and so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, 
so I think this was a fabulous conversation. I think it gave us a lot of insight. It stiffened my spine and made me want to fight for democracy even more. So thank you so much, Dr. Latz, Dr. Anderson. Uh, this was a, an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, very happy to be included. Thank you. Well, so Tanji, you and I have had some great conversations over the last few weeks. Yeah. Do you have any big um, takeaways? I think my, my biggest takeaway, I don't have one takeaway. I am just still amazed at um, the amazing guests that we were able to secure and share their thinking and to teach us and help us grow on this topic. Um, Dr. Billings starting us off with really grounding us in the fact that this has been going on since, since the 1990s. We've been talking about this, con this concept um, in the since the 90s. And I think my biggest takeaway was from today as well, but the ways in which now we are fighting democracy and we have to keep fighting for democracy. And now it's in the classroom. And now lawyers have to come to bear so that teachers are allowed to teach the truth because there are factions in our country that don't want that to happen. And I think the biggest takeaway for me um, was listening to Dr. Brown and Dr. Uh, Bedell talking about how they know they're not going to survive this fight. You know, they were very, very clear. It was very chilling. That you was know, rather they're chilling. They're not going to survive that was this rather fight, chilling. but they're making the conscious effort to, to stand up for educational excellence, um, educational truth, and to stand up for their students and their families and their community. That was a big takeaway. Um, today, listening to Dr. Latz and Dr. Anderson, just the historical grounding in how this is just one more cycle of the same thing. You know, I think back to the title of today's segment, it's not gonna be the last time. I wish it were, you know, I wish that this was the last time that once and for all, the democratic principles, the founders of this nation put on paper would be actualized fully. But I guess it can't be because when you put on paper something but you are living the opposite of that, right? So in the enactment of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution that was espousing freedom and liberty, there was active living out of undemocratic behaviors, right? Our society was even split at that moment. So if you craft yourself in a half truth, it stands to reason that we keep coming back to this place. Right, that we keep coming back to the place of who are we supposed to be as a nation? Who do we say we are? And I'm just struck by the regularity. It's almost like you can count the years and say, okay, we're, we're due for another one, right? Oh, okay, we're due for another one. Okay, we're due for another one. How many more times before it, the, the, it crumbles and we don't? have one more. I wish that we wouldn't have one more, but I, I wonder about that, that this could be the last time that we do it and we get it right. 
That would be nice. Then I would love the title of this uh, podcast episode to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it does seem to me that Dr. Anderson set out the stakes of this, right? Yeah. This is a fight for accuracy. This yeah. is a fight for truth. This is a fight for democracy. This is this is the fight that we've been having, as you say, since the beginning the tension between our founding ideals and our founding realities. That's and right. Those have been in tension ever since the, the founding. And how we resolve it changes over time. Um, we fought a bloody civil war to try and reconcile those two. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It didn't. We then had the civil rights movement that tried to reconcile those two, and it was very, it was very clear about that. I mean, you go through the speeches of John Lewis, Martin Luther King, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin. What they were talking about is live up to, to your, your founding ideal. Right. That was the, you know, that was Martin Luther King's. Uh, we have a promise, and we have a, a promise, check. Right, a check, a promissory note, right? The, you, the promissory right. note, and it right. has come back unfilled. And unfilled, yeah. Um, and it keeps coming back unfilled. And it keeps coming back unfilled. And mm-hmm. until we, as, uh, and actually it is the majority, the majority wants that promissory note to be filled. It always has, as far as I can tell from my historical reading. But the loud vociferous and violent minority has been able to suppress the will of the majority and which is why the 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 question of will democracy survive is really right. the question it's the question and and not to mention well funded right so you know this is this is not just a fight of violence this happens you know, through funding, right? These these efforts are well-funded. This is happening, you know, some of it is violent, right? There's a lot of violence, but this is happening in the judiciary. It's happening in the legislature. So the way we understand violence, this is, there are violent actions happening that are not registering as violent, because we think of violence as physical violence and there is legislative violence underway when you have, you know, more than half of our country working to legislate um, academic ignorance. Like they are literally legislating ignorance and threatening to fire and fine people. That is an act of violence. Um, and so. You know, As Gloria Ladson Billing said, mm-hmm. they will tear stuff up. They will tear stuff up, and they are tearing it up. This violence, um, this scorch the earth that we're seeing in in places, it it feels like we're just not. Our democracy is literally holding on by a thread. Um, I remember someone you know, I read, and I, you hear them say. Um, during the development of the Constitution, they asked Benjamin Franklin, so what do we have here, right? And he said, you have a republic if you can keep it. You know, the, the if you can keep it part is what we're living in right now. And I think all of what we have learned over these past seven um, episodes has really brought that out and the degree to which 
things are being torn up and, you know, how people making a last ditch effort against it and pushing against it. And then what we heard today is like the backstory kind of, you know, why it's so um, cyclical in this way. Um, I thought Dr. Latz really made it plain that schools are the evidential areas where people can put their finger on something and say, yes, you're the reason. You know, you're the reason. So let me, in my sphere of control, let me enact my power in this way. Well, this has been a fabulous uh, few weeks, Tanji. Thank you so much for being being my partner in this. Partners in crime. I'm glad you invited me. I'm glad you invited me. It has to be a good time. Couldn't have done it without you. As likewise. It's been a great time, Karen. Thank you so much. This episode wraps up season one of EdTrust's new podcast, Ed Trusted. We want to thank today's guests, Dr. Adam Latt and Dr. James Anderson, who brought enormous amounts of insight to this topic. We also want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast, including, but not limited to, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Karen Lomax, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. Sophie Adams of Tonal Park recorded and edited this podcast. Our theme music is composed by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time. <laughs>